Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Now, what we've been doing throughout this entire year in our Kingdom of God series, there's been one topic viewed from different angles this entire year, and it's, it's been about the Kingdom of God. What is it, and how do you live in it? And so this morning, we're gonna take a look at peace. But what we've been doing every single Sunday is we've been praying the Lord's Prayer out loud together because the epicenter of that prayer is this prayer, that heaven will come to earth. Do you know there is no prayer in the Bible for anyone to go from earth to heaven? It's about bringing heaven here because we need it. So let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, and then you'll be seated. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. I say this every time I preach or teach on Christmas. It's very simple. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of the four Gospels, only two of them mention Christmas. Gospel of Matthew, that's through the eyes of Joseph. The Gospel of Luke, where we're gonna be reading from this morning, is through the eyes of Mary. Interesting to note that only two of the four Gospels mentions Christmas, and Christmas is never mentioned again anywhere else in the Newer Testament outside of those two Gospels. But what's important to know is that all four Gospels, up to half of the Gospel, focuses on Easter. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. You would have never heard of Christmas had it not been for Easter, but Christmas is still important. The Nativity is still important, but it's important for us to keep it in perspective because in our culture, Christmas oftentimes is more important than Easter. And the reason for that is deeply biblical and theological. It's because we like presents. And on Christmas, we get presents. So we like Christmas more. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to eventually get to Luke chapter two. But prior to getting there, we're going to take a look at one of the most amazing prophecies from the Older Testament, that the Newer Testament writers reach back to when they're looking at Jesus to understand who Jesus is fully. This passage of Scripture is what we would know as a Christmas prophecy penned 1,100 years before Jesus was born. The prophet Isaiah is writing to his people in captivity, and he's writing to them, but he also, in writing to them, makes this prophetic announcement, Isaiah 9 Six through seven, you've heard it before. It's read at every Christmas service. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, with the next three words, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In other words, God will do this. This will be about what God does. This will be a God thing. No one will deserve it, but God will choose to do it. Now, where we're getting ready to read in Luke's gospel, I want us to keep in mind the prophetic announcement of Isaiah. There will be a child that will be born. He will be of the lineage of David. He will be known the Prince of Peace. And his kingship will never end. Now, with that context, we're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 14. But before we read, what we need to understand are two things. At the time of Jesus, the people of Israel were looking back at the prophets and saying, when, oh, when will that be fulfilled? When is this person going to show up? When will the Messiah come? When will God's king sit on David's throne? Not only that, though, but the Gospel of Luke presents us the Christmas story in the following context, that Caesar Augustus is now in power. And all of Luke's Gospel about the Christmas story, all of the nativity is underneath that understanding that Caesar Augustus has issued a decree and the entire Roman world moves when he speaks. Now, last week, I tried something I don't often do, and that was during the sermon, I looked for some help. And I said, what do we remember about Caesar Augustus? And found out, we remember very little about Caesar Augustus. Two college students chimed in and shouted out two facts. And in my opinion, that was worth all the tuition their parents have ever paid <laughs> in that moment. But with that said, here's what we know about Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus came to power by killing friends, bribing people, and going to war. The last person he defeated committed suicide. He was ruthless and powerful. And then he ushered in what was known as Pax Romana. Pax, peace in Latin, and Romana's Rome, Roman peace. And so Caesar Augustus took power by killing people, by bribery, by... And then he announced Pax Romana, Roman peace, which worked well if you were Roman. But it didn't work very well if you weren't. Well, the Jews were a people who were not part of that. And life wasn't good. And so what we have is we have a context into which Jesus is born as king. There's this powerful emperor king, Caesar Augustus, and Jesus is born during his reign. And the entire gospel of Matthew positions this to you and to me. Which kingdom will you live in? Will you live in Caesar's kingdom, which is about power and might and putting upon others and taking what you want? Or will you live in Jesus's kingdom, which is about humility and gentleness and kindness, and viewing others greater than yourself. And the entire gospel of Luke walks that out. These two kingdoms constantly are in collision courses throughout the gospel. Caesar Augustus, empire, and Jesus, prince of peace. Where do you live? Who's your king? Which kingdom do you live in? 
And so with that in mind, let's pick up our reading found in Luke chapter 2, verses 6 through 14. Here's what the text says. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Mary and Joseph are now in Bethlehem. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Remember from the last several weeks, every time you read the Bible and you see those two words together, good news, that's actually the translation of the Greek word gospel. So it could read, do not be afraid. I bring you gospel that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, nah, let's stay here. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby was lying in a manger. This Sunday in Advent, we are looking at peace. And every Advent service focuses on Luke chapter 2, verse 14, which is what we just read. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now what I know is there are some sitting here, and you're thinking to yourself, I love Luke 2, 14, but I feel like I'm an exemption to it. In other words, when you think about people on whom God's favor rests, you think to yourself, that ain't me. It might be everyone else in the sanctuary, but it's not me. Well, what I want to explain to us is that phrase, on whom his favor rests, is actually an English translation of one Greek word. And it's you dokeo. You meaning good or well, and dakio, to think, to seem, to think well of, or to be well pleased. Now, when you look at that Greek word in context, here's what's absolutely clear. As amazing as some people are, that does not get them eudekio. It doesn't get them that. And as bad as other people might be, it doesn't leave them exempt. This word speaks of God making a choice out of God's own intention, not that you've earned it. He has good thoughts toward you. And if you read it in context, you'll realize that the angelic announcement and the heavenly host announcement is to all people. Now, let me frame this as personally as I can. I don't know where I got this from, but when I was a younger child, all the way up through a little bit of chunk of my college years, 
I had a narrative in my head. And the narrative was this. Once people get to know me, they won't like me. I know I'm not the only one in this room that has had that. Where I don't know where it came from, but I would walk into a room when I was young, junior high, middle school, high school, and I would think, I would love to meet these people, but I just know when they actually get to know me, it's not gonna, they'll just, they're not gonna like me. And I remember preparing for ministry and I was in college and feeling the call of God and processing that through. I felt one day like the Holy Spirit literally spoke to me and said, never think that again. Never. What I want you to know, Pete, is you are created in my image. So is everyone else. Everyone else created in the image of God. And so from now on, when you walk into a room, you need to believe that when people get to know you, they're actually going to like you. I can't tell you how transformative that was for my life. It is not narcissism either. It's understanding that when God looks at his children, he sees his image in them. And when my image, the image of God, meets Steve Garland, who's also created in the image of God, when those images of God get together, it can't be all bad. It can't be. And so it transformed how I did life. And I remember the first role that I ever had. I was there in ministry about four or five years in. And we had one of those corny things that sometimes staffs or teams do. It's where you would say to the person on the team, what do you like about that person? So you gather in, it was probably at a luncheon or something. I can't remember the context, but I was there with this team that I was working at at the university, working with, and we went around the room and people started looking at each other and they said, you know what, uh, uh, one, but not gonna name, say Tony. Tony, what I really like about you is X or what do you really like about you? And I'll never forget this lady, Mary Lou, who recently passed away. We were in our group and she looked at me and she said, Pete, what I love about you is you can walk up to anyone, no matter who they are, and stick out your hand without any irony at all and say, hey, my name's Pete. And I sat there when Mary Lou said that to me, and I thought to myself, she has no clue how much of a miracle that is. No idea at all. And she had just seen me walk up to President Shapiro the president of Princeton, and stick out my hand and say, how you doing this morning, President Shapiro? She thought, I would never do that in a million years. You know what I thought? He's created in the image of God, makes a lot of money, has a lot of power, but he's created in the image of God, and so am I. Why wouldn't he want to meet me? I want to meet him. Why wouldn't he want to meet me? <laughs> so the reality of it is, it's a perspective. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking about God's peace, which we're, we're gonna get to next, and you're thinking about God on whom his favor rests, and you sit there and think, I'm devoid of that, get that narrative out of your head. No one here has earned it, and no one here can expel it. It's a choice God made in sending Jesus. He affirmed all of humanity when he sent his son. That's what's being said. That's what's being said. 
Now, in line with that, what I want us to understand is what is peace? Peace to us is the lack of war. That's part of what um, biblical, the biblical definition of peace is. But I want us to really understand peace. Because if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and the angelic host and that uh, the Lord of hosts comes with the angel and bursts on the scene and makes this incredible announcement that peace is now available for all humankind. And what in the world is peace? Well, peace in Hebrew is shalom, but in Greek it's erene. Same meaning. English peace, shalom in Hebrew, erene in Greek. And here's how that word is used biblically in the Older Testament. Shalom is when a wall is completed. Shalom is when Job looks at his flocks of sheep and none are missing. Shalom. Shalom is viewed in the Older Testament when kind of like a city it's referenced over cities where very complex parts are actually working together. That is shalom. When something is whole, shalom. To have misalignment is to not have shalom. Shalom is also a verb, and it means to bring shalom, to bring order into chaos, and to make things right. Here's a classic example in my life of shalom. Classic example, we have three grown children. And a couple of days before Christmas, they're all gonna return home. And when they step into our house, my wife will be in total shalom. Her life's complete. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Now, does it mean there won't be chaos over Christmas? I promise you, there will be. Dad loves her more than me. That gift was better. You ever get all that stuff? But the idea would be, is undermining all of that, or I should say undergirding all of that, will be a sense of shalom, that it's complete, stuff's together, and Fran will grin from ear to ear the whole time. Now, if you were to look up peace, on the internet, you'd come to Wikipedia and you'd find this for those of you who want to go a little bit deeper. In Hebrew, words are built on roots, generally three consonants. So if you look at Hebrew, it's primarily three consonants in all the words. And when the root consonants appear with various vowels and additional letters, a variety of words, often with some relation and meaning, can be formed from one single root. Thus, from the root... S-H-L-M, shalom, comes the words shalom, peace and well-being. Hishtalem, it was worth it. Shulam was paid for. Meshalam, paid for in advance. Mashlam, perfect. And shalem, whole. So in Hebrew, it's very fascinating. There are these families of words that come from the same consonants. And tell me, that doesn't sound like peace. Well-being, it was worth it, was paid for, paid for in advance, perfect and whole. And you see in Luke chapter 2 verse 14, when the heavenly host bursts on the scene and says, glory to God in the highest heaven, on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
What you have to know is everything we just learned about peace, the angelic host knows is coming. You see, when we look at Luke chapter 2, we see a baby in a manger and a peasant couple who are under the grinding authority of Caesar Augustus and the Roman Empire. But when the angelic host bursts into the story, you can almost feel it. Like when you read Luke chapter 2 with what we just read, you've got an angel that's doing a great job of announcing to Mary and to Joseph what's coming. Doing a perfect job. Doesn't need any help whatsoever. And then there's this weird paragraph where almost like heaven rips open and all of the heavenly host bursts into our natural world because they can no longer contain themselves and they reinforce and reannounce what the angel already said. You can almost see the angel going, I already said that. And the angelic host going, we can't help it. Because these people see a baby in a manger, but what we see is shalom. Shalom for everyone. So the angelic host bursts on the scene. And so the question becomes, how does Christmas or the birth of Jesus bring peace to earth? How does that happen? Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 2 says there's peace and hope in Jesus and some of us need this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. There's a biblical understanding and it's this, peace never starts with you. Shalom always comes from the outside and enters into you and if you will participate with it, you can perpetuate shalom and peace and wholeness into the world. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope, some of us need hope, of the glory of God. You know what faith is? Faith is when you simply trust in Jesus. The same way in which God looks down at that baby in a manger and it was his choice. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. God does that out of his own will. Isaiah told us that. God's gonna do this. And God steps into the world and when he does, the apostle Paul looks at it and he says, in Jesus you can have peace. Peace with God. And then in Ephesians chapter two, verses 14 through 15, in speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier and the dividing wall of hostilities, talking about the battle between Jew and Gentile, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. By the way, just so you know, in the Older Testament, true shalom is not when there's a peace treaty between two kings. Shalom is only mentioned when the two kings who are at war now have an understanding of peace, but then begin to work together for the common good. It's not just peace. It's when you work together. And Paul's vision of a group of people who understand God's shalom would be that in Jesus, God creates a whole new people group 
the two become one. Colossians chapter one, verses 19 through 20. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile himself, to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making shalom, erene through his blood shed on the cross. What's amazing to note is if you have an understanding of biblical shalom and you understand what the heavenly host is doing, you have one eye on the crib and the other eye on the cross. You see them both at once because the heavenly host does. The shepherds, Mary and Joseph, they see a baby in a manger, a baby in a crib, but the heavenly host sees the cross too and knows that there, all humanity, who's broken and dysfunctional and sin-filled and knows it, can come there and find shalom, can find right relationship with God. And some of us have everything this world has to offer, but we don't have shalom. We don't have peace. By the way, one of the most powerful understandings of shalom in all of the Bible is found in Proverbs chapter 16, where the proverb says this, the person who is reconciled to another brings shalom. God is about reconciling us to himself through Jesus, but that reconciliation flows through us to others, where we live a life of forgiveness and reconciliation. So the question becomes, how do we put feet to our faith with the Christmas story? What does it look like? It looks like hearing the heavenly host acknowledging their excitement. Yesterday, I was at the UVA basketball game. That was a lot of fun. Didn't like the score, but it was fun. And there's something about being in that arena when everyone around was thunderingly loud and cheering. I want you to picture the heavenly host that way. And then you look down on the court and you go, what are they cheering about? And you see a baby and a peasant couple around this little manger scene. And then you hear what the heavenly host says, peace on earth on whom God's favor rests. And it's you. And it's you. I didn't scream that loud yesterday at the game because I knew I had to preach today. But the people around me were doing just fine. But when I think about their excitement, there's a reason for it. Same with the heavenly host. Would you stand with me just for a moment? And as we stand together... Can we close our eyes in God's presence? I want to say a prayer over us. God, as we step towards Christmas, the next time we gather to worship, it's going to be Christmas Eve or the eve of Christmas Eve. Christmas is here. But I pray over my life 
and the lives of every woman and man that's here, that we would have God's shalom, where there's order brought into chaos, where there's peace through Christ brought into the midst of our storm, where we open up our hearts to God's favor and receiving his son, the Prince of Peace. And Lord, I ask that the heavenly host's excitement would touch each of us, and we too would be excited about this son who has stepped into the world and provides shalom, peace, and a reine for all. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.